travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Our guest today seems to be a bit of a superman of sorts, a partner at a world-famous business consultancy, author, sommelier, adventure racer, and owner of both a rum company and a vineyard. He has his fingers and toes in many ventures. With an interest in the outdoors, wine, and Bhutan, our topic country of today, he'll share his passion for travel and business in one of Asia's most exotic destinations. Get ready for some great tales from Michael Jurgens. This is Trevor Ranges from Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and with me, as always, is Scott Coates in Bangkok, Thailand. How are you doing today, Scott? Yeah, I'm doing good, Trevor. Uh, we've had an episode about mountain biking in Bhutan quite a few episodes ago, but uh, when we heard about Michael and wine and adventure races, yeah, we thought, why the heck not? And uh, I'm looking forward to this one. You know, Bhutan's one of those places I've heard about a million times. I've known people that have wanted to go, and I know that it's, you know, landlocked. It's in the eastern Himalayas, borders China and India, and I think you have pretty lowlands there. You have some really big mountains. Uh, we did do some wiki research, right? It's the land of the thunder dragon, and they have only something like 750,000 people in the largest city, Timpu. I think only has 100,000 people. So, I mean, it's a pretty small country populace-wise. And yeah, exotic. I don't know a whole lot more. You did a bit of research and, and know a wee bit more. Is that right? Yeah, I looked up some things on Wikipedia because although we did do that episode with Darren Bearcloth about mountain biking mm. uh, about 50 right. episodes ago. So that was like two years ago now. So, you know, I, I know that it's the land of the Thunder Dragon and I know that they have the gross happiness index um and i remember that they have uh, a very handsome looking king and queen that was very popular in thailand i think uh, the yep. thai media was was really into them um, but i did some research on wikipedia um, i learned that has a number of mountains that are higher than seven thousand meters which is twenty three thousand feet including gangkar puensum which is the highest unclimbed mountain in the world. It's also notable for its biological diversity, including a type of gnu, which is that animal spelled G-N-U. And uh, it's a constitutional monarchy, which I mentioned, and has uh, Buddhism as the state religion. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, to me, I always thought of Bhutan as maybe being something similar to Nepal. It kind of seems to have a similar shape and terrain maybe as Nepal with the high mountains in the north and slightly lower elevations in the south, um, but perhaps a much smaller population than Nepal. But having never been to Nepal or Bhutan, um, I, I really can't say whether or not they're much more similar than that. Yeah, I've known lots of people to go there doing everything from, you know, the classic sites to mountain biking, mountaineering and trekking. Uh, I'm intrigued. Uh, you know, I know that it's pretty mono ethnic. I don't think they have a lot of outsiders living there and they have a seemingly very high regard for the natural environment and putting a higher value on life than just chasing money. So, yeah, I'm intrigued. I don't know why I haven't 
gotten there yet, but I will one of these days. The one thing is it, it is pretty costly. I know to keep tourism to certain numbers, I think they require that you spend about $250 a day, but that covers your hotels and everything. You got to basically put your trip together that you spend at least that a day. So it's not an inexpensive place to go, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting closer by the day to finally getting there one day, I think. Yeah, you know, that would be a cool place to go again, because Darren talked about mountain biking. And today, Michael's going to talk about adventure racing. And, you know, I looked at a Google map before the show, and, and there's a bunch of national parks, although I can't imagine that the whole country isn't just one big national park. And then, uh, you know, it's the land of the Thunder Dragon. So that conjures up images of an exotic fairy tale type land. And I imagine it is pretty spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. And when I looked at a Google map, there's very, very, very few roads too. There's a lot of north-south ones, not a lot of east-west connectors. So, hey, before we get into it, uh, remember, Trevor and I cover all the costs for this show, but we do have some people named patrons who sponsor the show from as little as a dollar up to like $25 a month. But you can pick a plan that's right for you. Click donate off our website or go to patreon.com and search the name of the show. And for doing that, You'll feel great inside, but you'll also get in between these regular episodes, a little video from us, a photo gallery, or a short special episode. So help keep the show going, please. And recently, we shared some videos of Trevor's pub crawl he hosted in Phnom Penh and a little bike ride I did past Bangkok's Grand Palace and Wat Po. So there's some more exotic something something in it for you. So um, should we get Michael in? Yeah, let's bring him in. Our guest is the best-selling author of Drinking and Knowing Things. He's a certified sommelier with the Guild of Master Sommeliers and a Master of Wine candidate with the Institute of Masters of Wine. He runs the wildly popular Drinking and Knowing Things wine blog, which was adapted into a book that provides 52 specific wine recommendations. He's also the founder of the Bhutan Wine Company and is leading the development of the wine industry in the magical Himalayan kingdom. He also owns the award-winning SoCal Rum Company, which was recently awarded the highest point score in history for any silver rum, and is a professor at the Paul Mirage School of Business at the University of California, Irvine. He lives in Los Angeles, where he spends his time blind tasting and doing extreme sports. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm surprised you have time to even chat with us based on what I just read. And I know you're not in LA where right now. Where are you at the moment? I am in uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania. New Hope, Pennsylvania. Okay, well, let's get into it. When were you last in Asia and where was that? The last time I was in Asia was in um, February of 2020. Um, I was mostly in Bhutan, but spent a little bit of time in Bangkok. Actually, I got back to the States um, this was right as the lockdown was starting to happen in the States. And I, I had been in eight or nine different major cities, including like Kathmandu and Delhi and Bangkok and Paro. And I got okay. home and California immediately went out down on lockdown and I got COVID. So I, I might've been one of the super spreaders. Well, at least you got to see a little bit of the sights around Asia before you weren't able to travel again. Um, but let's rewind a bit because uh, we're going to cover a few different topics with you on the show. And one of those is Bhutan. So what first brought you to Bhutan and, and what was the purpose of that first visit? So I had been running uh, extreme races around the world. And so I was on some, some different running email lists. At the time, my girlfriend had read this book about Bhutan um, when she was in high school about kind of like an eat, pray, love thing about some Canadian woman that moved to Bhutan and fell in love with a Bhutanese guy and stayed there. So she had been saying, oh, 
let's go to Bhutan. Let's go to Bhutan. I didn't know where Bhutan was. I didn't even know what Bhutan was. But I was, I got this email that said, hey, we're, we're, we have an opportunity to run the first international marathon in Bhutan. If you would like to be considered, we're taking 10 people submit this form. And so I immediately submitted the form and uh, got accepted. And then I went to my girlfriend and was like, surprise, honey, I'm taking you to Bhutan. And she's like, great, we're going to the Himalayas. I can't wait. And I go, what the fuck are you talking about? Bhutan is in Indonesia. It's an island. And she goes, no, it isn't. It's in the Himalayas. And I go, oh. So I just signed us to run a mar- signed us up to run a marathon at altitude in the Himalayas. And she goes, yep. I go, okay, I guess we're doing it. So that's how I got to Bhutan in the first place. I didn't even know anything about it. How many times did you operate and run that adventure race? So I've run that particular marathon in Bhutan twice now. And I would run it again in a heartbeat. They're actually doing a, a really large ultra marathon, one of the hardest ultra marathons on the planet called the Snowman Run, which is, um, it follows the same uh, route as the Snowman Trek, which is, I don't know, 160 miles over five 18,000 foot peaks over, you know, multi days. And so they were setting that race up and I, I was going to do it or try to do it. Uh, but the first race was in October of 2020 and COVID shut the country down. So if and when they replan that thing, I may try to do that too. But the, the Bhutan Marathon is a blast. It's such a cool, just such a cool race. Yeah, we're going to get into venture racing a little later. But, you know, Bhutan's a country that many of our listeners might not be terribly familiar with beyond the picture of the Tiger Monastery. So as you operate a business there and you've, you've run across and in that country, can you give us a bit of a Cole's Notes overview of the country? Sure. So Bhutan is this um, little uh, kingdom that's nestled in between Tibet and Nepal kind of on the side of the Himalayas. It's interesting, while it's kind of between them, it actually only shares borders with with China and India. And it is a Buddhist country. Um, They switched from a full monarchy system to a kind of a British style with a parliament and then a royal family, similar to England about 15 years ago. I think some interesting facts about Bhutan is they don't measure gross domestic product. What they do is they measure gross national happiness with the idea that it's more important to them for their citizens to be happy than to be rich, which I think is an amazing way to live. And it, it manifests itself in, in their culture so strongly. And people refer to it as the happiest place on earth. Whether or not it is or it isn't, hard to say. But what I will tell you is, is that you know they strive for happiness more than they strive for stuff. Um, it's also the only carbon negative country on the planet. Um, and they are on track to become the first country in the world where all of their crops are 100% organic. That's an aspiration of theirs as well. So they're sort of globally revered for this um, sustainability and, and harmonization with the environment, which is really cool, but also makes it a very interesting place to try to grow fine wine grapes. Yeah, so that's interesting. Let's let's talk about that transition a bit. Since you first went to Bhutan to do this this marathon, and then you were obviously impressed with the country, as I imagine anyone would be. Did you return there a couple of times before you decided to get involved in doing some wine development there? Or how did that transition occur? Did you just go back to Bhutan a number of times and then see this opportunity? Could you explain a little bit about that process? Sure. So I had been, as I was studying to become the 61st American to to qualify as a master of wine, I had been traveling to all these global wine regions and checking them out. 
when I first went to Bhutan for that first marathon and I'm running through these terrace slopes with these beautiful crops in my head, I assumed that there had to be wineries there. And so I was asking everybody, Hey, where are the wineries? I want to go check them out while I'm here. And everyone's just kind of shrugged and like, what are you talking about? So I, that trip we met with, we had dinner with a, a number of government officials who had wanted to meet the foreigners that came to run this race. And so I asked one of them like, Hey, where are your wineries? I want to check them out while I'm here. And he said, we don't have any. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? How could you not do I got incensed and just started lighting the guy up. Like, this is a travesty. You have this beautiful country. You must make wine. And, uh, and he said, well, why do you think that? And I rattled off six or seven reasons. Then I went home back to LA and I wrote a white paper. I did some research, um, got what data I could about weather and soil there and wrote a white paper explaining all the reasons why I thought Bhutan would be an awesome place to grow fine wine grapes. And I emailed it to the country and I had no intention of starting a wine business. There. I just thought it would be cool if they did it. I thought they were like, you have this thing, like make some wine. And so, and that was the last I heard about it. A couple of years later, I went back to run the race again. And um, while I was there, a bunch of government people wanted to get meetings with me. And they were like, hey, are you the wine guy? And I'm like, yeah. So it turns out everybody had read the wine paper, the white paper. And so that's how the conversation started was I made this white paper and then went back to the country for something else and talked to a bunch of people. That's how it got going. So you run, you find out there's no grapes as you're looking for them when you're running around. You do a white paper. What is it actually about Bhutanese soil, climate, elevation that actually make it a good place to grow grapes for wine? One thing that that is widely, you know, held to be true is that vines, good wine grapes go great on slopes. Obviously, Bhutan has a lot of slopes. You also like to have um, a lot of potential diversity um, and microclimates. And Bhutan has a ton of that. The soil itself, you know, they have, because of the way that the Himalayas were formed, you have every type of soil from like these iron, this red iron rich soil to granite to alluvial runoff from the glaciers you know, microplastic free, pure water coming from the Himalayan runoffs. Um, but more importantly, it was that everything I ate in Bhutan the first time I was there was spectacular. It was like, you're eating a carrot. You're like, this is the best carrot I've ever had in my life. And it's, you know, it's small and it's dirty and it's, it's not orange, but it tastes phenomenal. And so I'm like, man, if they can do this with the carrot, God, what could they do with wine grapes? Okay, so how long ago was this? Like, has this process now yielded some wine? Because we understand that it takes a while for, for the grapes to grow, but then you need to, to age the wine for a while. Is there now Bhutanese wine that people can enjoy? No, not yet. I'm working on it. <laughs> um, I have six vineyards that are in their fifth growing season, and I have two vineyards that are in their third growing season. And, and so typically it takes four to five years for a vineyard to come online. I definitely had fruit last year, but the country was on lockdown and I have fruit again this year. Um, we made a, a decision, uh, just actually recently within the last few weeks that we were not going to try to make wine this year. We were just going to use the grapes for data analysis purposes and try to really figure out, um, and get prepared 
for next year. And so next year will be the first harvest. And this is kind of cool. Actually, if you think about the countries in the world that can organically grow wine grapes, every country that can already does and has for thousands of years. So probably the last country where they, they started a wine industry from scratch was New Zealand in the 1800s. So this is the first time this has been done in maybe 150 years. And I'm about to make the first wine ever in a country. So the very first vintage, I mean, that's a museum wow. bottle and I, I want to do it right. That's why we're being kind of careful about it. I could jam something in this year and get it done, but I'm more interested in, in making this moment historically memorable and doing it right. Hence next year. Yeah. Master of wine can't turn out a complete <laughs> turd of a bottle. Right? <laughs> you would, you would hope not, but here's the other interesting thing. Like, I don't know. All of this has be basically been on my judgment and I've spent, you know, the better part of many, many years now getting the grapes to this point, but we don't know. Like I, I worry that, you know, we're going to squeeze the first grape and taste it and go, ah, oh, this tastes like garbage. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm betting the farm literally on it being phenomenal, but who knows? I mean, it hasn't been done before. Well, because it hasn't been done before then, I'm curious, like, did you bring in a different number of variety of grapes? Like, are you trying to produce different types of wine so that you can figure out which which one would work best there? 100% we are. And um, the interesting thing about Bhutan is people think about it being this, this Himalayan nation, and it is. But the south side of the country is only about 500 feet in elevation, and it's very jungly. And then the north side of the country runs up to the tallest unclimbed mountain in the world at 27,000 feet. The distance from south to north is like 300 miles. So you, you have kind of every climate zone known to man. So I'm not just playing with grape varietals. I'm also playing with altitude. So I have some vineyards at 1,500 feet, some at 2,500 feet, some at about 6,000 feet, and some at like almost 9,000 feet. And in each one of those vineyards, I have about 13 different red and white grapes um, planted. And I know not all the vineyards are going to work. And I know not all the varieties are going to work. And I don't care. I just need to figure out, you know, oh, hey, the 1500 foot vineyards can grow Malbec really, really well. And the 2500 foot ones can grow Cabernet and Syrah really, really well. And so we're, we're still learning. My guess is it'll probably take truly the next 50 years to really dial it in. You're going to have to live really long then, Michael. I mean, you look like you're in incredible shape, but you might have to uh, have a successor lined up. So look, you mentioned this world-class carrot earlier, <laughs> which we are wondering, you know, Bhutanese cuisine. Can you tell us a little bit about Bhutanese cuisine? And are there any aspects of that that will actually end up pairing well with wine? Sure. So Bhutan is a Buddhist country, which means that you cannot kill anything in the country. It doesn't mean they're vegetarians. As a matter of fact, many of them are not. Um, but they have no uh, meat producing uh, entities in the kingdom, which means that all the meat has to be imported. Importing meat's not great for meat. So the meat there, in my opinion, I don't eat it typically. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, it's gray and they, they cook the hell out of it because, you know, it's been imported. They want to make it, you know, uh, disease free. And, and so um, there's a lot of meat, but I don't eat it. The produce, on the other hand, is phenomenal, as I mentioned, and they, they have a preference for spice. And the spice I would say is 
much more similar in flavor to like Thai spice than Indian spice. One of the, the kind of the national dish of Bhutan is this, this real simple peppers and cheese dish that is, um, you know, delicious. Matter of fact, <laughs> the first time I was there, we we're at this hotel and they're, they're cooking us, you know, the, the, these meals and, and everything seemed rather international to me. And so I, I talked to the chef, I go, yo, is this what you guys eat? you know, macaroni and cheese. And he goes, hell, hell no. Like we, we eat Bhutanese food. And I go, well, I'm in Bhutan. Like I want to eat some Bhutanese food. And he goes, really? And I go, yes. And he goes, all right, I'm going to make you this peppers and cheese dish. And so he brings it out and, uh, and I start eating it and it was just phenomenal. Like the flavor of the peppers was ridiculous. And so I'm, I'm shoving these things in my mouth as fast as I possibly can, not knowing that there was a delayed, effect. <laughs> and about two minutes in, all of a sudden I start crying. My face turns red. I had to literally get out of my chair and lay down on the floor. And they, they brought me milk and it was, uh, I, I overstepped my boundaries a little bit, but, um, yeah, the, it, a lot of spice, a lot of peppers. Um, you know, they make things like the world's best cardamom comes from Bhutan, which you probably wouldn't know because hmm. when was the last time you inspected a bottle of cardamom? Uh, for where the origin was. Um, but yeah, just tons of flavors. And then the produce itself, because it's organic and the way that it's grown and the micro free, microplastic free water, the produce itself has really just explosive flavor as well. So typically when I'm there, I kind of go vegetarian for a week or two until I get back to the States and then I go back on my carnivore diet. Hmm. Okay, so it seems that if our listeners uh, wanted to visit Bhutan, the vineyards aren't quite ready to visit as a tourist attraction. But I assume that you've probably explored the country a little bit uh, on your visits. So what other attractions or activities um, might people want to see if they were to go and visit Bhutan? Well, for sure. Um, I mean, Scott, you mentioned the Tiger Monastery, um, Tiger's Nest is sort of a must see. Uh, it's right outside of Para, which is the airport that you would fly into. So it's not that difficult to get to. And for the listeners that have seen pictures of Bhutan, it's that red and white monastery that's sort of built into the side of this vertical cliff. It's just stunning. Um, and you can hike up to it. Uh, the hike takes, it's about three miles and it's essentially straight up. And you can, the front, the first half of it is kind of, a little easier and there's a little cafe at the midpoint where you can stop and eat some, uh, drink some tea. And so a lot of people just go up to that point and then turn around and go back down. Then the second half gets a lot steeper. It's magnificent. Every time I go to Bhutan, I, I go to Tiger's Nest. It's just a must see. In the capital city of Timpu, uh, I mentioned that Bhutan was a Buddhist country. They got a very wealthy person uh, in, I think, Hong Kong donated you know, I don't know what the cost, I think it was about $50 million to build this enormous golden Buddha statue. And when I say enormous, I mean, it's like 300 feet tall. It's like as tall as the Statue of Liberty. Um, and the base of it is um, a, a temple. And so you can go visit it and you can go inside the temple and it it is like just staggeringly cool there. You can't believe that something like that exists in the world, let alone like in the middle of the Himalayas. It's unbelievable. Um, if you go over to the Punaka Valley, which is kind of on the other side of the Doshala Pass, 
um, from Timpu. So you kind of drive up to this pass, which is about 12,000 feet and offers a view of like just a ton of these Himalayan peaks that are, you know, 20,000 foot peaks. I think you can see, I'm trying to remember, I think you can see 12, 20,000 foot peaks from the top of the pass. So if it's not cloudy, it's just stunning. And then on the other side, down in the Punaka Valley, that's, that's where they grow a lot of the food. Um, and it's, it's really, really cool. There's two big rivers that run through it. You can go whitewater rafting, which whitewater rafting in the Himalayas is just a cool thing. It's not maybe as gnarly as, uh, at least in the Panaka Valley, it's not as gnarly as some of the class four, class five rapids, but it's in the Himalayas. It's cool. In every major city, they have this um, kind of big sort of fort, um, which is called a zong. Um, and, and then the zong is always a cool place to visit. It seems like randomly one third of the time when I visit a song, there's some sort of a festival going on at the song and there's people dancing and playing music and eating and stuff. And then there's a ton of trekking uh, for people who like to hike. I mean, Bhutan is one of the, the best places for trekking the Himalayas in, in the world. And people, you know, come from all over and you can do uh, anything from a one to two hour trek to a 30 day trek. Okay. So we go to Bhutan. I know it's not easy to get to flights are minimal, but how long is someone going to need for a worthwhile trip? And can they see a vineyard while they're there? I would say going to Bhutan for less than a week is, doesn't make any sense at all. And if you can stretch it to 10 to 14 days, you know, that, that would be really useful, particularly if you want to see more of the country, just to get from the West side to the East side of the country, you, you know, requires like a, either another short flight or uh, about a, maybe a 15 hour drive over, over one of the passes there. Can they see a vineyard? Absolutely. Anyone is more than welcome anytime to come visit the vineyards. They're beautiful. Um, they can, you know, nibble grapes depending on, you know, what time of the year they're that they're there. And if it's next summer, we may even have some very youthful wine for them to try. Let's change gears a bit and talk about adventure racing. You mentioned that you first went to Bhutan to do a marathon and you mentioned that there's an ultra marathon there. How did that hobby start and where did you first start doing adventure races in Asia? So when I was maybe 22 years old, I was a lot more confident than I am today about my physical prowess. Um, I was in really, really good shape. Um, you know, just doing a lot of, a lot of physical activities pretty much on a daily basis and I was driving to the gym on like a Wednesday or a Thursday. I forget exactly what day it was. And I heard a commercial for the LA marathon, which was that weekend. And I got to the gym and I told my workout partner, I go, Hey, the LA marathon's this weekend. You want to go run it? And he's like, no, we can't run a marathon. I go, dude, we can do anything we want. We're, we're super human, you know? And so he's like, all right, sure. Why not? Let's try it. So we went down and we ran the race and I literally, I was like taking my shoes out of the box. It's the starting line, no training, just went out, gripped it and ripped it. And we both finished and it was every bit as horrible as you might imagine. Uh, and I was sore. I, I actually had to call in sick for work for like two days because I couldn't walk. I mean, it was brutal. But after about a week or so, I was like, huh, that was interesting. There's something there. And so that, that kind of led me to running in general. And I was doing runs around in the U S and then one of my friends found this, he, he had been wanting to go to Antarctica and he found a, a marathon down in the heartland of, of Antarctica near the South pole. And he's like, Hey, I want to go to Antarctica and let's, while we're there, there's this marathon, let's go run it. And I was like, all right, let's do that. That sounds awesome. Went down there and did that almost died. 
And coming out of that, I was like, oh, wow, this type of running is way cooler than running around the streets of Chicago or New York or Boston or, you know, whatever the, you know, the desirable marathons are. So that, that kind of got me to let's go weird places. Uh, and then that's, that's when I got the email about Bhutan and marathon. Oh, let's go there. All this, I just encapsulated like 25 years of evolution into like a 60 second soundbite, but that's what happened. Yeah. Great summary. So let's talk a little bit about that Bhutan run. Like, what do you see? What are the people like? Just tell us about what you breathed, saw, experienced while running in Bhutan. The race course itself, they it, it starts in Punaka, the, the town of Punaka, and they bus you up into the hills, and they bus you up into this national park. The uh, I think I'm I think it's the Jigme Dorji National Park. So. Um, Trevor, you're, on your Google Maps, you could probably see it right outside of Punaka. And so the first half of the marathon, you run through this national park and it's just wilderness and yaks and monkeys. And the, you run down the edge of this river that's like real white water, but this really like emerald green color. It's just bitching. Um, and then you come out of the park and you start running down into the town of Punaka. And that's where you start to get to, you know, where all the terraces are and and the little villages and stuff. Uh, and then you cross like a thousand foot suspension wow. bridge over this river, which is those of you that are not cool with heights, like my girlfriend, it's, it's quite a bridge. I'll just say that. Uh, I, I love it. I think it's awesome. Um, and then you sort of finish up in the, in the town center, but I'll, I'll tell you guys a quick story. And this is really what made me fall in love with Bhutan. So I'm running the marathon. For those of you who've run marathons, you know, there's the wall at about mile 19, mile 20. And I'm at about mile 19. I'm like deep in the throes of, okay, things are hurting. And this little kid starts riding up to me on this little rattle trap bicycle that looks like somebody made it metal shop, high school metal shop. And I, you know, traveled the world. I've been to enough places, particularly developing economies. And if a kid comes up to you, that kid wants money or candy or both. And so I see this kid and I'm like, ah, oh, I don't, I don't have any emotional energy for this kid right now. <laughs> like nothing, nor do I have any money on me. Um, and this kid comes racing up to me on this bike and then he turns around and he starts riding on the trail next to me and he starts like chanting, you can do it. Do your best. You can do it. And he's cheering me on. And I'm like, Oh my God, this kid doesn't want anything from me. He's helping me. And then he rides off. And I see him ride down the trail and he stops about a hundred yards up at this little kind of metal corrugated metal shed <laughs> that looks like it's his house. And he runs into it and he comes out of the house and he's standing on the side of the trail. And he's holding this thing. And I'm like, ah, oh, me, the cynic, right? Like, ah, oh, here we go. He's got a trinket. He needs to sell me. I still don't have any money. I still don't have any emotional energy. And I get up there and the kid is holding this half full bottle of Pepsi. And he's handing it to me and he's like, you're thirsty here. Have my Pepsi. Like you need some, something to drink. And I was like, oh my God, like the, this kid has nothing, lives in a shed and he's given me the American guy half of his Pepsi because I'm hot and I need it. Like it was just it, this profound experience. Like even today talking about it, like it just chokes me up. It's crazy. 
that's kind of the way that the people there are. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, that's amazing. And I just found a photo of that suspension bridge, which is pretty spectacular. So I'm hoping you could share some photos with us to put up on our website and share on our social media to go along with uh, our show notes about this episode. Speaking of which, uh, do you have like an Instagram account that people could follow or any sort of information that people could keep up to tabs on what you're up to? Yeah. So um, if you're if people are interested in the Bhutan Wine Company, um, they can go to BhutanWine.com. And that's kind of the website for as much information as we get around to putting up there. And then on Instagram, uh, at Bhutan Wine, that's B-H-U-T-A-N, Wine. Um, we, you know, we're... <laughs> I'm old, right? So I'm not good with the Instagram, but but we do uh, post stuff up there from from time to time, and certainly people can can message me through that. If if people want to get in touch with the bike Jurgens, then um, drinkingandknowingthings.com or at drinkingandknowing on uh, on Instagram. That's that's more me personally than the Bhutan stuff. That's great, Michael. Uh, super fascinating person, as I'm sure you've been told before and are well aware. But greatly appreciate you making some time to chat so many things. I'm not so sure as we've covered such a broad array of topics about a particular country in 30 minutes as we just did with you <laughs> from wine to adventure racing. So thanks for making the time to share with us. Oh, thanks for having me on. And absolutely, I'll uh, I'll just shoot you guys some photos and uh, you can post them up there. And it, I'm telling you, anyone who want, who is thinking about going to, going to Bhutan should do it. It is life changing and just you will have a, a, a measurable experience. It couldn't, couldn't, you know, recommend it more highly. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. So uh, thanks again. All right. Cheers, guys. Wow, Scott, what an interesting guy. Yeah, he was super interesting. And I think we both weren't sure what to expect because we, you know, read up on media about him. We looked on his websites and and he's a bit brash in a good way. And we were like, what are we going to get here? Are we going to get a dickhead or are we going to get a cool guy? <laughs> Clearly firmly in the cool guy category. And wow, he has done a lot of interesting stuff from his work, uh, at Deloitte, which he didn't talk about, to marathons and adventure racing and wine and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I'm excited just talking to a guy like that. Yeah, I, I just like how he went about doing this. It was just that, like, he was interested, like, wow, you must have great wine here. And from his explanation of what the terrain is like, it just seems like it would be a place to grow wine. And then I like the fact that he wasn't like, oh, I'm going to establish the first vineyard here. It was like there was no vineyards. And he was like, you really ought to have some. And then he helped facilitate it. And because he has the means to do so, he went about helping make it happen, it seems. And and he certainly is passionate about it. And it's going to take a long time. But uh, to have established you know, a wine industry in a country where there wasn't one before really is quite an accomplishment, I think. Yeah, it's pretty neat when he said that this will be the first winery in a new country, organic one, since New Zealand in the 1800s. So that's quite a big thing. And sounds like the first bottle of wine is a few years away yet. But yeah, from what he said, it sounds like they should be able to grow some pretty good wine there. And then his stories of, of the run were pretty dramatic. I mean, the Pepsi story is really heart-wrenching. And we had video on and he he got teared up a little bit. So it's it's neat when people make those kind of connections with other people when they travel as well. 
Yeah, you know, and and I almost feel a bit bad that we didn't go into a little bit more detail about what the countryside was like and what some of the attractions to see are, because as I mentioned, I was taking a look at the Google Maps there and I saw a photo of that suspension bridge and, and it looks spectacular. And and you could just imagine that Bhutan is, is a gorgeous country and, uh, you know, that national park and these rivers. Um, it, I'm sure it's beautiful. The people are wonderful. The food, I, you know, I was really curious about that. And, and I imagine in some ways it, it must be somewhat similar to Indian and he was talking about the spices there and he mentioned cardamom which is something we do have here in Cambodia as well so I, I am mm -hmm. familiar with some good quality cardamom um, but it's great to hear they have some really interesting spices and, and great organic produce the fact that they don't produce any meat is quite interesting because you know in Thailand Thailand's a Buddhist country as well um, but they certainly do have a, a, a you know livestock uh, industry yeah, absolutely. He sort of convinced me not to eat meat when I go to Bhutan one day. And, <laughs> you know, it is close. And one of these days I'll, I'll get there. I'm not entirely sure why I haven't done it yet, but he certainly piqued my interest yet again in a new sort of direction of going there. So it was great to have Michael on. Uh, remember to check out the show notes because we'll have the links to his Instagram accounts, Twitter, his sites, etc., all those things. And if you really like the show, become a patron, click on donate and you can sponsor the show and get a little special bonus episode or video between each of these. So yeah, that was a pretty fun one, Trevor. Yeah. Uh, people can go to the show notes at talktravelasia.com and there will be a Google map. Uh, not a lot of details, but I think it is helpful to have a look at the map while you're listening to one of the shows and uh, we'll have photos there that Michael will share with us. Links to Drinking and Knowing Things, the SoCal Rum Company, Bhutan Wine Company, and a link to our Donate Patreon page uh, because we do special episodes for our patrons every other week. So until then, I guess we're going to have another episode coming up in about two weeks. Yeah, Scott? That's right. Until then. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and 